wrestled quite a bit, as I often do on Easter Sunday, with what to preach on. And in the end, I chose to preach on just one verse. If you'd like to look it up, you're certainly welcome to. It's on page 1,121 of your pew Bibles. Otherwise, there it is on the screen in its entirety. It's from Romans chapter 6, the last verse, verse 23. And it says this. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For those who have been visiting with us this morning, first of all, welcome. I truly hope and pray that you have found the Spirit of the Lord to be dwelling here and that you have been able to enter into this time of worship and that you feel invited to do exactly that. But if you are a visitor or if you're someone who's been at college in a way, throughout this season of Lent, the 40 days that go from Ash Wednesday to today, Easter Sunday, we have been doing a sermon series that I've entitled The Wages of Sin. It's based on this verse. And what we have been doing through this sermon series has been looking at different biblical stories where when humans sin, They've been met by the quick and often surprising and swift judgment of God on their lives. It's been a very hard sermon series to look at because as we've been exploring those stories, we've been learning about ourselves. So much of what I want to do is just review it. And when we started all the way back in Genesis chapter 19, and we looked at the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, we recognized the wickedness of the people that lived in those cities. And yet it forced us to look at our own hearts and recognize that their evil was not entirely unique. At the very least, most of us can identify with Lot and his wife, who when we live in a wicked culture, feel drawn toward participating in its sinfulness. But if we all examine our hearts, I'm sure that most, if not all of us, can also admit that we are not entirely pure when it comes to sex and sexuality. And so if Sodom was rightly destroyed because of their wickedness, we must realize that we should be running from city after city because of our own sin. After that, we went to Joshua chapter 7 and we looked at Achan, a man who, thinking he was not seen by any others, took some objects and hid them from himself. And he was not discovered until the Israelites went to their next city to conquer. And when they failed, it was discovered that he had taken what did not belong to him. And again, in looking at Achan and rightly condemning him for his theft and for his lies, we were forced to look at ourselves. And how often have you, have I, have we coveted and taken things that do not belong to us? Not only from other people, but how often have we, have you, have I taken from what truly belongs to God? How often when being tempted by sin have we not tried to make a decision, well, is this right or is this wrong? But we've made that decision on whether or not we thought we could get away from it 
and that no other people would see us. And so if Achan was rightly condemned and judged and stoned by the community, how many of us truly deserve to be brought before the community of others where our sin has affected and be called out, be challenged, and be confronted because of our sins? After that, we looked at this prophetic text from Ezekiel chapter 18. And in that, it talked about how this proverb, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, should no longer be spoken. It wasn't the same thing as a story that we've looked at, but it was a reminder that we are responsible for our own sin. And again, how often... When we look at our lives, have we tried to put the blame of our sin on other people? Like the proverb that was often quoted, how often do we say, well, my parents raised me in this kind of a home, and because of the way that they uplifted me or rose me, I had no help but to be this kind of a person. How often do we blame others and say, well, it's the stress I was under. It was the influence of other people. And we try to blame and shift our sin onto the responsibility of other people. But this text reminded us that, no, I can't do that. I am responsible for the choices that I make. And my sins have to be dealt with by me. It's not anybody else's fault. And then we made it to 1 Samuel chapter 13, where we saw Saul, who was too impatient with God. He didn't wait for Samuel to arrive to offer the sacrifice that he was supposed to offer. And so Saul jumped in and did it himself. And in looking at Saul, how often do we do the same thing? How often are we too impatient in waiting on God? How often are we, am I, able to cut corners in my faith to say like, oh, it doesn't matter, it's not all that important. And therefore, how much are we responsible? Sure, Saul didn't lose his life, but he ended up costing himself his kingdom. And then we had to ask ourselves, as obviously none of us have ever lost our lives from our sins, nevertheless, how much has been ruined? How much has the consequences of our sins been felt by ourselves and spread to others? And therefore, how much should we be taken from? How many kingdoms should have died with those choices? After Saul, we went to the New Testament, to Acts chapter 4, where we saw the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who, much like Achan from Joshua 7, thought that if no other people saw what they did, that they could hide it also from God. And in the New Testament, they thought that they could take advantage of the grace of Jesus and that in their sin, it would be no big deal that they could lie to the church and lie to God in an effort motivated not by generosity as they pretended, but the appearance, their appearance in the front of the community of faith. And again, we had to examine our own lives. 
and wonder how often we've been more concerned about what other people think about us than we are about what God thinks of us. How often have I, have we lied and put on a face to pretend like we are better than we truly are? And again, if Ananias and Sapphira were rightly struck down, immediately dead because of their sin, isn't that also what I deserve? And then last week, as we looked at Mark chapter 11 and the clearing of the temple of Jesus, we saw how this temple, this place where people were meant to go and approach and worship God had been corrupted. And instead, it had become a place where certain people were taking advantage of others. It had become a place where some, the insiders, were welcomed and encouraged, but the outsiders were, were sort of shuffled to the side. It had become a place of f false security. That having sinned, you could just go and do the right things, and, and then you were all set. And Jesus had to put an end to that. And again, we had to ask ourselves the same questions. Have we tried to use our status as Christians to our advantage, to the disadvantage of others? Oh, I'm a good Christian person, so overlook my mistakes. Have we turned this into a place where only certain insiders feel welcomed and others not so much? There's no room for them here. Has this become a place of false security? thinking that as long as we show up to church at least every once in a while, God will be okay with our sin. And just as Jesus came to stop everything that was going on in the temple and create a whole new system, does he need to rechange our hearts and reshape us? And then on Friday, looking at Matthew 27, we looked at the wages of sin as Jesus hung from that cross. And we literally were encouraged to ask ourselves, where are we in the crowd? Are we among the mockers? Because again, I, as I'm sure many of you can think of times where we question God, is your way really the best way? Were we among the hypocrites? Were we among those who ridicule God's plan and his ways. But more importantly, as we looked at Jesus, we recognized that he did not suffer all of that pain and the hurt on the cross because he was guilty, because he was paying the wages for his sin. No, Jesus is the perfect son of God, never sinned once in his entire life. And so the wages that he was paying, the sin that he was bearing on that cross was not his. It was mine. It was ours. And that's where we get back to our short text and back to the point of all of this. Without a doubt, we have learned that the wages of sin is death. It's never a small or light thing to ignore, dishonor, 
question and doubt a holy and powerful God. Whenever we do that, we harm ourselves, we drag down our culture and our communities, we move from the life that God has given to us, and we earn death. That's where that word wages comes in. Wages are what we earn. When you work for someone, you earn, based on the time you put in and the things that you do, a paycheck. Those are your wages. And in the very same way, when we sin, we earn death. When we die, we earned that penalty through our actions, through our choices, and through our disobedience. But again, it's not just the text that tells us that. It's not the stories of the Bible that reveal that truth to us. But how many of us have seen that not only in our lives, but in our culture over and over again? How often have we seen people, as mentioned in 1 Timothy 5, 6, that speaks of those that are dead even while they live? said it before and I'll say it again. You don't have to be a Christian to recognize that sin has consequences. God gave us his laws, his rules for a reason. And when we choose to disobey or assume that we can escape his notice or that our plan is better than his, then we have wages to pay. And people pay those wages with their lives. They pay with an empty, meaningless, purposeless existence. They pay with day-to-day -day pursuit of addictions, a fear if they're going to be exposed in their lives, of wonder of where they're going to find their next little bit of pleasure. And it is an empty, dead existence. And sometimes they pay with their very lives. But what is more, death is not just the end of our lives. The wages of sin is eternal death. It's hell. It's permanently being separated from our God. And as Revelation 20 speaks, it's a lake of fire where all those whose names are not written in the book of life will be sent forever. And we need to know that and to remember that and to contemplate the truth of the reality of that. The wages of sin is death. But we stare at that truth not to just get depressed, upset at ourselves, and beat ourselves down for failing over and over again as we do. Instead, I want us to look at that truth as those who go through near-death experiences. I don't know if you've ever heard the stories of someone who were very close to losing their life. But oftentimes they tell the same story, that staring death in the face and living 
It changed their whole perspective on what that life was all about. No longer were they going to get caught up in the little things. No longer were they going to waste time on what didn't matter. Having seen the reality of death and feared it for themselves, they had a whole new set of priorities in their lives. And that is what I want for us in this whole sermon series and especially for this morning. Because it's in truly knowing the depth and the deserts of our sins when we can appreciate the good news. Because the verse doesn't end with bad news. And there is a very important word. We heard it this morning at the graveside service. And we hear it again that cannot be emphasized enough. And that word is but. Romans 6.23 and the stories that we have been looking at all clearly show that the wages of sin is death, an inescapable reality because who God is and all that we have done wrong. But today is Easter. And on that very first Easter Sunday, when the women went to the tomb expecting to only find death and destruction, the end of the story of their hoped-for Messiah, they thought they would find death and a body. But they, they found an empty tomb instead. Yes, Jesus died to pay for our sins, but in his resurrection, he proved that his sacrifice had been received by the Lord. He proved that life had won. He proved that death and all of the consequences of sin had been defeated by him. And just like was emphasized on Good Friday, it's not just the truth of the fact that when they went to the tomb, Jesus' body was not there. And that is why we celebrate Easter. But it was that in rising, he offers a gift to us. And that is the other good news part of this verse that we celebrate today. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but the Free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's start by looking at the end of that little part of the verse. When you get a gift, oftentimes there's a name tag on that, to and from. Who is this gift from? From Christ Jesus our Lord. And again, we recognize that this is a gift from God himself. God, the eternal triune God sent his son to this earth where he suffered throughout his life, where he was constantly questioned, ridiculed, doubted, and wondered about, and then suffered and died. He is the one that went to that cross to pay the price that was meant for you. And again, when he rose, the victory he won was not just for himself, but for all those to look to him in faith. And that gets to the key part of this verse. While we have earned as our wages death and separation from God, the hope and promise of eternal life is not earned. It is a free gift. I heard it on the radio this morning, and it was just a short little drive from my home to the church, and so I can't credit it properly who said it, but they said exactly this. Salvation 
is not a reward for the righteous. It is a gift for the guilty. And that's what we celebrate this morning. It is nothing that you can do to receive it, to earn it. You can't do the work to pay for it yourself. Christ gives it to you. And all we have to do is say, Jesus, I receive your gift of eternal life. To be clear, that's a gift that starts right now. And in fact, I was very tempted to go to the beginning of chapter 6 of Romans and preach through the whole thing and wanting to keep it concise, I didn't. But I encourage you at some point today or maybe this week, read this entire chapter because in its context, the whole point of this is not about what comes next after our death on this earth, but it's about how we live now. That having died with Christ and being raised with him in our baptisms, you are invited, you are called, and you are able to live that freed life. Sin is no longer in control of you. You are not a slave to it. You can and should live for Christ. But of course, the great news is that what starts on this earth will continue into all eternity. That whenever we surrender our bodies to death, or whenever Christ returns as he promised he would, we who have received that gift of free grace will be welcomed into his glorious presence where we forever will live worshiping our God and in a right relationship with him. That is what we celebrate today. And hopefully, by such an honest and hard look at our sins and what they have earned, that only increases our appreciation for the gift that is now offered to you. That is what an empty tomb means. It means that we are now called, invited, and able to live for and with Christ today and forevermore. But have you received that gift do you know that life and the comfort of the promise of eternal life with him to come? If you're unsure at all, all you have to do is receive it. To confess that you know that you are a sinner and that what you have earned through your choices, your actions, and your decisions is death. But then to put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And ask that the death he died be the payment for your sin and the life that he was risen to live would be the life that you now live on his behalf. Since he gave his all for you, you will give your all to him. And then live. Live the life that Christ invites you and gives to you as that free gift. The terrible news we've been looking at for many weeks is that the wages of sin is death. All of us should full well know what we have earned and what we deserve. But thanks be to God that because the tomb was empty, each one of you are told that there is a free gift given to you. And it is the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Receive that gift and live for our risen Savior. Amen. Let's pray.
Lord God and Heavenly Father, again, we do confess that we have violated your will and your ways over and over again, and we deserve death. And we've seen death and stared at its face, and it is ugly. But thank you that the tomb is empty. Thank you for defeating death and all of the consequences of sin. Thank you for the plan you have for our lives to be lived in response to that and in eternity with you. And I greatly pray that each and every one of us here this morning will have and do receive that gift given to us in Christ Jesus. That it not only gives us hope for the future, but it changes the way that we live our lives from day to day, no longer enslaved to sin. And so continue to receive our praise this morning. And as we gather every Sunday morning, may it be in reminder of the fact that it is your day, the day we celebrate when the tomb was empty and life was given to us. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.